To reply, guys, I am so excited this week to talk to somebody that both Julia and I are a huge fan of. Um, this is Adam Johnson from the the podcast that we talk to you about all the time. Citations needed. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I first of all just want to say I I absolutely love your show. I think you guys do such a good job on that show of having really like solid materialist takes that never pander to like this I don't know this idea that I sometimes see on the left that like the only thing that is like a materialist issue is like something that is only affects white guys I'm not gonna name names but I kind of hate that mentality sometimes and I think you guys find the balance really well oh well thank you we try to to do that well um it's 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 really good and um i am very excited today to talk to you about something that is unfortunately very relevant right now which is war propaganda and obviously anyone who is on social media is seeing a ton of that but you know any cable news newspapers um and i know for myself it's you know it's so much from so many different sources that it feels really hard to even tell what's going on a lot of the time, especially in Ukraine. But, you know, really, this could apply to any issue um, that involves war conflicts with other countries. There's just so much propaganda. And I wanted to kind of dive into what is propaganda? How do we tell what it is? How do we tell what's like what sources we should trust or what combination of things? And so just to kind of start at the beginning, how would you characterize the difference between like propaganda and just news? Well, that's a tough one. So to me, it's more about kind of emphasis and calibrating one's sources. Um, obviously, in any work war fervor scenario um one has to be discriminant about what they believe what they accept without overcorrecting. so for example um at the beginning of the gulf war in 1991 there's kind of the infamous case of of the of the incubator babies where um a uh, a kuwaiti astroturf group worked with a pr firm to invent this story that saddam hussein was throwing uh, babies out of incubators for like sort of Hitler-like reasons. And then on the one hand, we, kn- we now know that story was fake. But then there was also a story about how Saddam in the 80s had gassed, had used mustard gas and other chemical weapons on, on Kurdish uh, civilians. Now that story happened to be true. And so when one analyzes any kind of set of propaganda about official enemies, whether it be Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein in 2003, Vladimir Putin, whomever, you have to figure out sort of what's true and what's not true. Now, I think the instinct sometimes is to disbelieve everything. Um, but of course, like the gassing of the Kurds, some, some of it's true. Um, some of the stories that were told um, about, you know, various enemies, a lot of the atrocities about ISIS uh, ended up you know, being very much being true, right? A lot of the stories about uh, Nazi Germany ended up being true. Uh, so you have to kind of distinguish between what, what, is, was, what is and what isn't war propaganda sometimes the enemy in the, under the crosshairs of U.S. national security state um, are doing bad things, um, and they don't even really deny it. Uh, for example, just today or just yesterday, Russia bombed a, a children's uh, uh, hospital in a maternity ward. Uh, the Russian government didn't even really bother to deny it, so we can probably assume that's true. Um, and the question becomes, okay, well, how do you, in the fog of war, how do you kind of determine you know, what's real and what isn't real. And it can be very difficult because on the one hand, you don't want to be credulous. On the other hand, you don't want to be insensitive to like to war crimes that are that are unfolding in real time. And so uh, it's a balancing act and one has to be discernible. I think generally when one views media, um, especially now with the sort of, when you're in the middle of a fervor, one must try to be uh, skeptical and discriminate, but not, not just reflexively disbelieve everything. Um, 
And this in many ways shares some parallels with just after 9-11. Um, it's different, obviously, in key ways. But, um, you know, after 9-11, I mean, you know, the U.S. was attacked. 3,000 people died at the time. We thought it was 10 to 20,000. Um, emotions were very raw. This was a real, you know, major attack. Um, and one needed to be sensitive to that while not while making sure that we didn't overcorrect. And I think what you see right now is the a fear of overcorrection um, with respect to, you know, sending billions and dollars in arms into groups that maybe, you know, we're not quite sure where their weapons are going, uh, whether or not the U.S. appears to be negotiating any kind of ceasefire or, 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 or um, peaceful settlement in good faith or whether or not they're just kind of going for regime change in Russia, which has its own risks. Um, and how do you sort of pump the brakes on the, on the fervor without, with it, while still being sensitive to the real um, crimes and aggressions that are going on the, on the part of Russia? And this is a very difficult thing, I think, for anyone to do um, in media, to know where that balance is and to, try to, and to try to find out what's bullshit and what's not. And it's not always easy. And typically, I think if one doesn't know, one should probably not just guess. Um, and uh, to me, it's a matter of uh, emphasis and framing um, I think for the most part, people have, can see that there's a pretty significant double standard uh, that goes on uh, with, with respect to this kind of sudden um, emerging uh, boycott of all things Russia. Uh, it's been frustrating, obviously, for Palestinian activists. Uh, it's been frustrating for people who try to draw attention to the U.S.-backed war in Yemen that's killed over 400,000 people. Um, obviously this amount of outrage, uh, the, the reservoir didn't go nearly this deep, uh, probably went a couple inches. So, um, there's been some frustration about the inconsistent application of the outrage. There's obviously a racial component. There's a, there's an element also of whether or not you're in the crosshairs of NATO or, or rather NATO is the one doing, or, or NATO country is the one doing the bad thing. So there's obviously a lot of hypocrisy. Uh, that can become frustrating for a lot of people who've been working in those spaces. Um, you know, obviously, one doesn't want to engage in whataboutism. Every brain has <laughs> the most favorite expression that has ceased to have any meaning at all. Um, and so I think this is a, a time where where one must be discernible and look back and sort of see what's, you know, what's going on. Um, and make sure that that there isn't an instinct. There, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a kind of pathology in Western kind of chauvinist liberalism. And I think it's born from a good place, um, which is to kind of do something, to quote unquote, do something. And their instinct is to do something. Uh, especially when the the people committing the war crimes and the atrocities are, are not us, but some, but some, you know, state enemy force. Right. Uh, and it's a, I think it's a good instinct. I think it speaks to our humanity, but I think it's easily manipulated. If not, if one is not careful, um, and it's easily kind of pushed towards solutions which are martial in nature or escalatory in nature um, that don't necessarily reflect the most wise course of action. Again, anyone who's lived through the overcorrections of 9-11 can, can tell you that. Um, we look back at Barbara Lee's dissent vote, you know, 420 to 1 against the invasion of Afghanistan, um, a decision a lot of people in retrospect find either courageous or prophetic or both. Um, in many ways, basically saying, you know, this is done from an AUMF authorization that was literally just a page long. This seems very open-ended. This seems very, um, very hasty. Um, and we look at that and we think, yeah, in retrospect, maybe we should have been more careful. And I think we're, we're not quite to that level yet because the U.S. has obviously sent a lot of arms, but the U.S. has been sending arms to Ukraine for, you know, eight years now, uh, military aid in various forms or U.S. aid in other forms for many years. Um, but I do think that in this fervor, the, the, uh, unfortunately in our culture, the only, the only currency of empathy is weapons and putting people in prison. The sort of the way you show you care is to either send weapons, engage in broad, base, uh, broad uh, uh, sanctions against civilian populations or locking people up is sort of how you show you care about crime to draw a domestic parallel. And I think that those incentives can become somewhat perverse. Um, and I think that historically that we, 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 as a country, we get very high on our own moral superiority and we, and we rush to make decisions that may not be prudent. So I think 
I, now is a time of kind of observation uh, of seeing how um, these escalatory forces interact with the real humanitarian crisis that's unfolding. Um, I think for the most part, the White House has shown, you know, they're a weird combination of there. They have been prudent. They're not, they're not even, you know, debating a no-fly zone because they know that's not, you know, that's a very, that's a non-starter. Um, but at the same time, it appears based on reports that I've seen that they've foreclosed on any kind of peaceful negotiation because they're, they're, they're basically gambling on a, on a, on wrecking the Russian economy, hoping it rattles the cage and provokes some kind of regime change, which is a huge risk. Um, and it's a risk that's going to come with a lot of collateral damage. Um, and I, 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 I have my own personal opinions about that. So, you know, right now the media reflects that it reflects, you know, CNN and MSNBC is nonstop speaking in hysterical kind of martial language, very jingoistic language. They're kind of, again, they're very high on their own, on their own uh, sanctimony um, and something that we never saw with other conflicts where the, where the bad guys were reversed or, or the, the U S was the primary mover of violence. Um, and uh, it's pretty glaringly inconsistent. Um, obviously you had the, uh, <clears throat> the Israeli bombing of Gaza in last uh, in the summer of 2021 um, that did not invite this level of moral clarity. You had a, you have a, you have a BBC reporters um, posting, uh, how to uh, diagrams of how to build Molotov cocktails to throw at tanks. This is obviously something that would never happen during the you know the Israeli siege on Gaza or the uh, U.S. backed and Saudi, Saudi bombing of Yemen. Um, so there's an obvious double standard there. Uh, one thing we say on our show a lot is that propaganda is usually not about lies; it's about emphasis. So obviously, this is there's a very specific nonstop emphasis going on right now. Um, to some extent, it's understandable. Russia invading Ukraine is a is a is a is a pretty egregious violation of a of a basic norm, or <laughs> uh, you don't invade other countries. But again, it's a norm that that Israel and Saudi and U.S. have violated all the time. Uh, that did not court this much outrage. So, um, so I think from a media criticism standpoint, those 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 double standards are noteworthy, if not necessarily the most morally urgent thing right now, um, which I would probably say is about. Uh, refugees and settling refugees, which is always, I think, the most important thing. Um, but I think it's a secondary topic and one that is going to be, I think, analyzed at a later date. I think the uh, the degree to which uh, U.S. media, uh, again, the s selectively decides to care about some victims more than others is, I always think, worthy of note. Um, even though, even though I think that is viewed as being um, what about or whatever kind of Slavic mind trick. <laughs> Slavic mind trick. Pointing out hypocrisy is, I guess, yeah. renamed it now. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about, um, I mean, whenever people point out hypocrisy, you know, specifically things that are extremely relevant, like the U.S. invading Iraq or, um, you know, us currently um, backing the Saudi-led war in Yemen, you know, people say one of two things about it, um, you know, on the, on the minimal end that it's what about is, um, uh, more, more maximally that it's Russian propaganda, that it's oh, right, apologism. Yeah. And, you know, it, I think, yeah, I think especially recently with this statement that DSA put out, um, I, I mean, the backlash to that seemed <sighs> wild to me. Um, but any, anybody really who is talking about how the U S and NATO may have contributed to to escalation here not you know not like removing blame from putin um right. for doing the invasion but you know talking about how you know maybe it, it wasn't actually the um maybe it actually was kind of putting ukraine in in a dangerous situation to promise future nato membership without actually offering that protection well it's about ideological disciplining i mean there's a reason why there was a thousand articles about a single statement the dsa made whereas yeah. a, normal, a normal dsa statement invites literally basically no no one gives a shit um it's about it's about policing the the the, the frontiers of acceptable opinion which is pretty much the function of most bourgeois media it's to sort of tell you what's okay to think and what's not okay to think um, you could even argue it's the point of what I do. Although I try not to do that. Um, and I certainly don't have any 
corporate backing, uh, unfortunately. Um, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. I, I think the the there there's there's these taboos that develop. And again, I think it stems from a place partly of of something a little bit understandable, which is like, okay, on the like literally 10 minutes after the invasion, is this the right time to start doing the NATO bashing? But you know, first off, the opposition to NATO has been a pretty standard, box standard left wing position for decades now. Um, you know, NATO ran right wing death squads in the <laughs> 60s and 70s, probably the, the biggest force of anti communism in Europe. Uh, obviously, had many ties to fascist, fascist organizations, funded fascist organizations. After the Cold War, it became a relic of the Cold War, pr provided needless hostility. <clears throat> there was anti NATO protest in 08, 2012. Um, it's a bog standard left wing position, even liberal position for a long time that, that it was a needless provocation that did nothing but line the pockets of weapons contractors and embolden the forces of the right in Europe. Um, and that it was <clears throat> primarily about sort of snuffing out or, or weakening communists and socialists in Europe. Um, bog standard until February 24th, 2022, at which point, again, even NPR did a, a, on the morning of the invasion before the invasion did a whole uh, or rather uh, two weeks before the invasion did an article about how NATO set the stage, et cetera, et cetera. This was a standard issue opinion. <clears throat> then after the invasion, it became more crime apologia. Um, and I, and I sort of understand why we maybe shouldn't center it. I, I, I'm sympathetic to that because it does, it does seem a little bit like you're removing the, 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 the blame for, to on you know away from Russia, and I think in certain contexts, like I wouldn't lead with it necessarily, but it does become a bit of it, it becomes very much about ideological disciplining to make it a taboo altogether in a way that strikes me as very anti-intellectual. Like we're all fucking babies who can't have real adult conversations about multiple causes of of a singular political event. Yeah, and B very much is about shoring up NATO itself, and you understand that NATO NATO adjacent organizations like the Atlantic Council. Um, fund a lot of these so-called disinformation organizations. This has been a primary problem for many years now, a major problem for many years now, because they want NATO to be seen as this kind of default, benevolent, liberal democratic organization rather than a military institution, which is what it is. It's not a human rights organization. It's not even a democratic, pro-democratic organization. NATO has non-democratic members, Turkey being chief among them. Uh, so it's clearly not some high-minded principle. Um, and whether, you know, and then people say, oh, well, some countries want NATO. And it's like, well, yeah, or some populations want NATO. That's true. But obviously there, there's, a, there's a mutual antagonism that goes on where NATO necessarily instigates these tensions because it emboldens and gives it power. And the right, the, in the right wing or the sort of forces of war in Russia uh, do similar national myth-making. Um, and one of the basic premises of anti-war activism for years was we weren't going to do the who who you know, two kids in the back of the seat saying, he hit me first, he hit me first. We were going to sort of de-escalate our side of the conflict with, an, with a belief that we weren't going to do the thing where we're the, where we're, we're the morally preferable empire um, because every empire in the history of empires has always made the argument of, well, we're better than the other empire. That's why, you know, so you have to choose between two lesser evils. Um, and then you get into this kind of squishy kind of agency speak about like, well, you know, certain populations want it or want NATO. So it's imperialist or Western centric to be pro anti-NATO, which is really just kind of, uh, it's liberal claptrap. Uh, you know, the, 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 if you, if you pulled, you know, Kurds on the eve of the Iraq invasion, most Kurds would have supported the invasion. And in fact, after the invasion, polls show most Kurds did support the invasion to this day, but nobody would accuse one of being a, denying the agency of Kurds by saying the U S invasion of Iraq was, was a crime and, 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 and was imperialism. Uh, you know, we can find various populations who support various things at all times. That's not how I think one should understand the world or, or rather understand one's own country's participation in the escalatory uh, tension and violence in these places. Um, and that, that discourse shifted because by invading Ukraine, obviously Putin just did, uh, you know, 100 years with a public relations for NATO on his own. Um, so it's certainly understandable. Uh, the question is, how does one get out of this kind of escalatory framework um, of in kind of mutual and mutually antagonistic framework? Uh, and you see this also with the other taboo, I believe, um, uh, uh, 
uh, McFaul went on MSNBC, the former Obama uh, Russian diplomats, he called it the, the, the two N-words was what he said, quote, unquote, the two N-words, NATO and Nazis. And you see it about the, the quote, unquote, Nazi question, yeah. which is also an interesting one, because, I, you know, again, Putin sits up and gives a speech where he justifies the war using a, using imperial terms. You know, I'm, I'm this is definitionally imperial because he said it's imperial. He said, oh, I'm going to re I'm going to reassert the territorial integrity of pre communist Russia. He blames Ukrainian nationalism on the Leninist plot uh, and basically says that he's that there's a sort of czarist justification for the war. So it's like, well, OK. And then he says, well, I'm going to denazify Ukraine, which is obviously cynical bullshit because <laughs> uh, he knows it plays well. And obviously, the Russia has its own right wing. Uh, that's very much you know, it's a little bit ex more eccentric in the context of Russia, given their history. But that's, you know, there's quasi fascist elements within their own military. Um, so it's not it's not in good faith uh, at the same time. Well, OK, then how do you talk about the problem of the U U.S. government sending a bunch of arms to actual neo-Nazis, which is, I think, a real concern right now? So can you have the conversation without just like, quote unquote, doing a Putin propaganda line? Um, uh, and it seems like if we're going to not talk about things because they're part of some pro-Russian narrative, then we can never really talk about anything. I mean, this is very much reminds me of 2000 kind of with us or against us with the terrorist, right? It's, it's, a, it's an anti, it's a very anti-intellectual, very patronizing framework to understand the world. And so, yeah, I do think you can make kind of cartoonish I think people can make cartoonish arguments about the so-called Nazi issue um, in a way that doesn't, that seems flattening or kind of um, solipsistic. But I, but I do, but I do think it's weird that while we're in the process of approving $15 billion more in arms, we're like, you're just not allowed to have the conversation at all in any context. And that seems to me to be a mistake. I, I would totally agree with you. I saw um, yesterday, Ilhan Omar said on Twitter, uh, the consequences of flooding Ukraine with billions dollars in American weapons, likely not limited to just military specific equipment, but also including small arms plus ammo are unpredictable and likely disastrous, specifically when they are given to paramilitary groups without accountability. And, you know, I mean, I- That's a very veiled reference to, to neo-Nazi- Yeah, I mean, these, you know, it is, I would agree with you that Putin saying that he wants to denazify Ukraine is, is pretty clearly not the real motivation for yeah. this invasion. And I, yeah. I don't know anyone that, I mean, there's probably like, you know, uh, boner jams 420 sure. egg avatar on Twitter or whatever thinks that, but nobody is, serious. Nobody, nobody buys that line. <laughs> yeah, but I also think that it's completely- you know, um, it, it's completely legitimate to be concerned about giving a bunch of weapons to Nazis. I saw some estimate on Twitter that I don't know if it's is true, but that the Azov Battalion has like 900 members. And let's just say that that is true. I, I'll, I'll try to look up the real number and put it in our intro, but even giving weapons to 900 Nazis is like, in my opinion, a really bad, idea and well, i think you know, at, at the very least i wish people weren't so precious about it like why not just say look like ukraine's been invaded by by a military that's 20 times its size by a country that's 10 times its population with a military budget that's 10 times its military budget so we're not going to be too picky about who's fighting for our national liberation like that seems like a okay like um, you know i think it's a, that gets a little dicey but look i mean if if the chinese invaded california tomorrow who do you think would pick up arms it wouldn't be a bunch of fucking marketing managers and liberals it would be <laughs> that's true yes it would be, it would be fucking cletus in his maga gun collection like let's be honest here yes you're right so like let's be honest about that and have a real conversation about it rather than just creating a bunch of taboos like we're all fucking children yeah i agree with um, you and I think that's kind of where I find the conversation very, um, very disingenuous and, and, and being like, look, you know, we, there's a Faustian bargain with, with white nationalists that the country's decided, the liberal state in Ukraine has decided to make um, because that's who they think is going to fight. And I'm like, OK, like we can have that conversation. That seems like an honest conversation at the same time. You know, people have been raising the alarm bells from the Southern Poverty Law Center to um, you know, the uh, Jewish Ukrainian societies to uh, leftists uh, on the United States for years that the U.S. CIA maybe shouldn't be arming. You know, there was a prohibition supposedly in 2018. There's debate about whether or not that was really enforced. 
like normie center centrist former CIA members of Congress have brought it up. It's not like it's a it's not a fringe thing. It's not a it's it's not a new thing either. It's a concern people have had for many years. Um, and so then the question becomes one of context. Like if you build if you are or if you're bringing it up right now, are you not effectively um, doing victim blaming for the whole of Ukraine? Are you not effectively rationalizing the invasion? I think there are contexts with which that may be true. But the idea of a carte blanche uh, taboo or a kind of hand waving it away by saying, oh, they're only 1% of the parliament. It's like, well, that's not really the issue because fascists don't typically, their power doesn't lie in their electoral representation. Yeah, that's they're not like, a, don't don't boo vote, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of a non, it's a little bit of a non sequitur. Um, but if, but while returning to the fact that, you know, you're flooding a bunch of billions of dollars in arms into a country, right? I mean, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. The Soviets killed a fuckload of Afghans. It was not a, they were not there on a humanitarian mission. So, but we also gave arms to some dicey groups. Like there are reasonable questions about uh, where those arms are going. And it seems like you just can't, you just, that's not a conversation you can have right now. It's just considered taboo. It's considered Putin apologism or whatever. And, um, and because there's a fervor and there's a fervor of like, we need to, you know, stand up for Ukraine. And again, I'm, I'm sympathetic to some extent about to, for that. Cause I do, I do think that if my, if your country's invaded, you can't be, you really can't be overly picky about who you're arming. Um, I, but I do think that's a separate question from whether or not we should be as a country arming them and what the long-term consequences are there and what the safeguards are to prevent that. And if history is any guide, whether it be Libya, Syria, Afghanistan, the U.S. is not discriminant about who they hand weapons to. Um, and to the extent that they are, it's mostly a formality. So, you know, I, these, these, there's so many taboos around these conversations and there's such a, and, and, and the, the, the the criteria for pro, you know so-called propaganda or disinformation is literally things that make NATO look bad. I mean, it doesn't even have to emanate from some foreign funded source. It's literally just does this make me look bad? Okay, then it's dis, disinformacioso or whatever fake Russian name they give to words to make it sound <laughs> more sinister. Yeah. Um, and I do I, I do think that does stifle the conversation. Um, because you, you really are only getting one conversation right now and anything that, that's slightly, uh, you know, one inch, one degree off program is considered, uh, is considered Putin propaganda or whatever. And, uh, anything, anything that isn't just this kind of hollow, you know, liberal chauvinism is, is, is seen as suspect or off program. I, I find it extremely uncomfortable. I mean, it does. <sighs> I, uh, I was. Uh, alive and engaged in the lead up to the Iraq war. And, you know, I mean, obviously it is. It's not the same thing. I, there was obviously a ton of very, very dangerous anti-Muslim racism um, at that time. And I think, you know, I mean, I, I am getting in, in, incredibly concerned about like the weird hate to ordinary Russian people. But at the same time, I, I don't I don't want to make a comparison between like just yeah. the, the surveillance and the arrests and just all of the terrible, yeah. terrible things that were happening um, in the wake of 9-11. But, you know, to me, this I think sometimes and I'm guilty of this as well, that leftists can be apt to want to point out things that are not being talked about as often, like maybe bringing up this issue of like, you know, what could be the long-term consequences of arming these neo-Nazis who are walking around with Nazi symbols. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, I can, I can definitely understand why, like, it, it can seem even to some well-intentioned people that, you know, perhaps there's not um, enough, like, you know, condemnation of, Putin or, you know, solidarity with Ukraine or, or, you know, I mean, like yeah, obviously the, this bombing of the hospital was horrible, but yeah, go ahead. The, 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 the DSA, the DSA statement had like 800 condemnations. Of I Putin. agree. Like it no. doesn't, there's no, there's no way you can get around it. It's this, I, you're, I not totally allowed, agree. you're not allowed to do anything but that. Yeah. And so it, again, it's, it's that you're either with us or against us. And yeah. if you're not fully on program, you're seen as suspect, you're seen as, as, um, uh, insensitive you're seen as as glib as detached from the reality on the ground or a tanky that's a new new or one tanky there are some tankies but it's fringe you know yeah or you're seen as you're seen as being um 
not concerned with what was what's going on because again the 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 reality is that most of these most of the most of the stuff takes on a life of its own there are so many forces at work looking to exploit the situation that you know you look back again not not to make another crude comparison but i i you know it's 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 probably in terms of like visceral outrage it's similar to it's it's comparable to a 911 but it wasn't an attack on us personally um, although you could argue to an extent the, the 2016 election meddling has a little bit of the personal to it, which I, I do think is a force animating some of the reaction to this, um, although clearly not to the same extent. Um, and you look back and you say, like, was, you know, when we, if you look back at 2001, 2002, 2003, like, did anyone think we, th does anyone think the lesson from those years that it was that we didn't ask enough for enough nuance or enough quote unquote blaming of America or enough context was like was there was there a lack of that really looking back or was it the other problem um, well i think even talking about the lessons that you know could have been learned from history is now considered apologism in a lot of you know, places you know it, after 9 11 if you say like well you know obviously this doesn't justify it but you know america has done this this and this in the middle east that may have provided some context which I think looking back, we would all say is a perfectly sensible and like intellectually sound thing to do at the time was viewed as being insensitive to the victims of 9-11, just as yeah. now providing context is viewed as being insensitive to Ukrainians being being bombed by a military, which clearly has no interest in not bombing civilians. And I think that w once you accept that premise that that it's viewed as being insensitive or being um, or, or, or being. On sort of morally unserious, then then you then you limit the conversation to a very narrow range of options, which is precisely the point of that kind of discourse policing. Um, and because the the currency with which you show you care is by arming weapons and and funding war, uh, you know. And I understand that this is not it's not an anti-war or pro-war thing because the war has already started, right? The yeah. war started. Well, you could argue it started in, when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014 and 15. But this is, the, so it's not an anti-war, pro-war thing. It's a bit of a simplistic way of looking at it. But it is, what is, what are the forces of my government and NATO countries doing to make the situation worse? And how do we, how do we mitigate that and try to um, make sure that there isn't, that the forces of, of, of U.S. hegemony and NATO military dominance don't, exploit the scenario, the situation to, to suit their own geopolitical interests. Um, and I think, and go and get greedy and go for kind of more ambitious geopolitical aims, like, like overthrowing the, the government in Moscow, uh, to the detriment of any kind of peaceful negotiation. Because if you, if you can't have a, one of the things that's bothered me from the beginning of this, if you can't have an honest conversation about, you know, quote unquote, you know, NATO, then you've, forfeited any reasonable peace negotiations for an off-ramp because that's such a that's such a central part of the conditions that putin laid out albeit he's what he's asking for is never going to happen but presumably there could be some middle ground and by eliminating that as even a topic of conversation or any kind of factor at all which some people say oh, it's not a factor at all which is i think ridiculous or or because there, my favorite one is he he said it is a factor nato Putin said it's a factor and everything that Putin says is a lie. So obviously we can well, yeah. determine that NATO is not a factor whatsoever. Except for the things he said were a factor, like the fact that he doesn't think Ukrainians are, re are real people, um, which gets into a pretty dark place pretty quickly, uh, which is to say he believes that they're basically frustrated or, or confused Russians. Um but that we believe, but of course the other geopolitical interests, because of course it's not just Putin or the sort of psychology of Putin. It's the, it's the consensus of the Russian national security state uh, who believes in these, you know, existential strategic risks. Um, again, doesn't justify it, but it's a thing they believe in. I think, I think this is where you sort of, th th there's a conflation between explanation and justification. Um, you know, and I, and I don't believe, Putin drawing, people keep talking about these red lines that Putin drew and Noam Chomsky talks about this and people are criticizing him for it. Um, but that doesn't mean it's justified. It just means that there are things we can do to, to uh, mitigate the situation without, without being too moralistic about it. So like if I'm a serial, you know, if I'm a serial killer and I send a message to the local newspaper saying that if, you know, if any 
couple comes into this park at this time, I'm going to kill them. And then the couple goes into the park at that time and I kill them. That doesn't make it justified, right? Yes. Just because Putin has some fucking red line that he invented one day in his head or his, his, his generals did doesn't mean it's justified. Yeah. Um, but it does mean you can predict it or know how to work around it or know how to de-escalate it. Yeah, it does mean that, you know, to extend your metaphor, it does mean that it, it might make sense to let people know that that might not be the best time to go in the especially park. Especially to really butcher the metaphor, especially the serial killer has nuclear weapons. And so like, yeah. how, how, do you, how do you sort of talk about that honestly when you're, when you're not even allowed to discuss things? But of course, you know, the sort of ideological disciplining of the left is not the, is not the primary crime here. It's the, it, but, it, but, I, but I do think it, in the future moving forward in the next few weeks, it can limit the, the political options available in a way that really just kind of breeds this extortative media climate of, of sort of get with the program or else. Um, and then you have people like, like uh, Ilhan Omar, who's making a very controversial stand. I think she's only one of two Democrats to vote against the funding. Who was the other one? Cori Bush. Oh, okay. Because my guess is they view it as being escalatory. They think it may backfire. And it's such a, it's seen as this fringe position um, because again, the currency with which we show empathy is throwing money at stinger missiles. And I think there are instances in which that is true. That is how you can show solidarity and empathy, but it's but it shouldn't be the only one. Yeah. And and that is the grammar with which Americans know how to speak. That is our that is their language we know how to speak. And that's our love I, language. Bombing is our, our love language. That, that's our love language, providing small arms and weapons. Words of to, affirmation, to... bombs. Yeah. And yes. uh and you know. It may be a little bit pat and maybe uh, I'm guilty of this myself, but when you start to sort of talk about negotiations and, and an off-ramp and peace and some kind of agreed upon settlement, um, which again, is sort of, sort of doing, a, it's, it's a bit of a, it's, it's a bit of a tautology. It's kind of like saying, what, you know, I, I believe in good things and I hate bad things. And so what do you mean? What, what are you willing to sacrifice for peace is the question. And I think that's a fair criticism. But when you start, and, and, and Phyllis Bennis wrote about uh, wrote, wrote this in, in, in an article in these times, where like we have to be talking about a constructive off ramp and an engagement and all stuff. And the Biden administration hasn't even spoken to Russia. In fact, they they sanctioned the the primary diplomat, which makes speaking kind of hard and almost impossible. And so they're clearly not, you know, they're saying, well, without preconditions, we won't do X, Y, and Z. But it doesn't even seem like there's an effort uh, either on the part of Russia or the U.S. to have any meaningful, peaceful dialogue. I know that Israel, Turkey, and France have attempted to um, mediate something, but they're 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 not they're they're too small potatoes for it to really matter. This is kind of a, a new topic, but one thing I've been wondering about is you know we see like a lot of these trends on. Twitter and, and even on cable news, um, like one that's coming to mind is uh, Zelensky as cutie sex symbol, you know? Yeah. Um, well, that's just a... Yeah. yeah. I mean, but like, you know, there's other kinds of, I mean, there's, there's other tropes, like for example, you know, a, a lot of people bringing up the idea of no fly zone at the same time. And, you know, I'm wondering like, to what extent, you know, are are these ideas just kind of like occurring in people uh, in, a, in a parallel fashion or, you know, like are there forces kind of like pushing out propaganda tropes? I mean, yeah. Ideas? I mean, look, a lot of, you know, there was a letter recently signed by a bunch of former ex-generals calling for a no-fly zone. And if you go down the list of the generals, almost virtually every single one of them either works for an organization funded by weapons contractors or works for weapons contractors, as most former military brass do. That's how they make money. They go and they launder through and they rotate through and they they make you know three hundred thousand dollars sitting on the board of Raytheon or whatever. Um, no, but those actually charged with the actual situation, no one takes that seriously. It's a total non-starter. It's been a non-starter. There's been a red line. I don't know. If, You've ever read um, Stephen Cole's book, uh, Ghost Wars, about the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. But the book does a really good job laying out what the rules of engagement are. They're the same rules that existed in Syria when the U.S. and Russia were both bombing Syria. Uh, they're same rules in Afghanistan. They're basically changed here and there. There's been some escalation. There was a lot. Of, there was some escalation in Afghanistan, but there, there's like basic rules that the Russia, quote unquote, well, Russia, the former Soviet Union, and the U.S. follow that you don't cross. Um, and they're basically sticking to that. 
um, you could argue that that's immoral, that there, there's a greater good here, that we can't you know, let Putin blackmail us. And I, and I get all that. And I think people calling for a no-fly zone are coming, again, coming from a good place. Just as I believe those in Syria who call for no-fly zone are coming from a good place because they're watching these horrific images of people being bombed. And they want to do something about it. And NATO grounding Russian planes is an immediate thing you can do to do it. And I understand that. I think most people don't know what a no-fly zone is yeah. for the most part. I, I just think, think it's, it's a rule that says, hey, no one's allowed to fly here. Yeah, but of course, it's not a no-fly zone. It's only a one-party fly here zone. And then when there's two parties contesting the zone, that becomes a war zone. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a right. You, you don't just say, hey, hey, buddy, land your planes. Like Pearl Harbor was the implementation of a no-fly zone over Hawaii. That isn't that is textbook no fly zone. Uh, that's what it requires to install a no, uh, to uh, assert a no fly zone, with some rare exceptions. In Bosnia, there was a, they asserted a no fly zone, but there was no meaningful contest in the area, so they were able to do the magic wand. This is different because Russia is already contesting the airspace, but for the most part, their shelling and bombs aren't even actually coming from uh, the air force; they're coming from a surface to surface. But so I sort of, you sort of understand it, and it, it is a bit of a way of kind of backdoor asking for a direct conflict. Um, so yeah, as it has been in the past. And the reality is that no-fly zones with almost no exceptions all, always lead to regime change. I mean, again, if you recall, Libya in 2011 was was marketed as a no-fly zone. That's how they got UN sanctioned. That's how they got Noam Chomsky to support it. And then after three weeks, Sarkozy, Cameron, and Obama got together. France, UK, and the United States got together and said, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to go for regime change. And other countries who supported the UN, no fly zone, said, wait, what? We, didn't, we never agreed to regime change. We were just going to try to protect civilians on the ground. And within six months, they had overthrown Gaddafi, and, and, and um, the anti-Gaddafi rebels were, were sodomizing him with a bayonet um, before torturing him and killing him. And so it's a bit of a bait and switch historically. Um, it's a way of kind of calling for war without looking like you're calling for war, or, or rather, I should say, an escalation of war because the war has already gone on, right? Yeah. The Assad and Russian regimes had already killed thousands of people in Syria by the time the no the no fly zone calls were in place. So I I, I don't want to act like it's the it's the U.S. creating war, but it is an escalation of a, of a war that already existed. And if there's an argument for engaging directly with Russia, like let's be adults and have that argument. You can say, look, we can't let Putin blackmail us. We have a, there's a greater moral imperative here. Uh, it's you know the the, the, the you know the, the, the risk of nuclear war is is is, is always going to be there anyway. Like, let's make the argument. Don't this kind of cutesy wootsy no fly zone thing is is it's liberal branding. It's it's not a it's it's the reason why it polls. I mean, again, the same poll that asked if we people wanted to directly militarily engage with Russia polled at I think twenty five percent, and then they asked. If they wanted a no-fly zone, and it was seventy-five percent. It's sort of like those polls that used to show, you know, seventy percent of people support gay marriage, but thirty percent support homosexual marriage. It's just the same thing phrased differently, and so it sounds better, which is why people frame it as a, they they like the, they use the framing of a no-fly zone. Now, Ukraine civil society and government is calling for a no-fly zone, so there's a there's a there's an affected party here who's also calling for it, just as yeah. there were. Just as there were groups and civilians being bombed in Syria, calling for no fly zone in Syria, so you completely understand why they would do that. Because they yeah, no, I think it's extremely understandable. Yeah, so because the, they have no, they have no real, they have no real other recourse. There's no other power who can come to their aid other than the United States, right? Which is you know, it's like the Kurds taking assistance from the U.S. against ISIS because ISIS was going around raping, and killing people. So they're like, yeah, I'm not going to be precious about this. I need the U.S. to come in and give me fucking air cover and arms. So again, it's completely understandable. I do think there are forces who exploit the the good the good faith kind of instinct to do that to push a, a, a escalatory or retaliatory or a mutual escalation of a conflict in a way that suits you know the Raytheon school of Oriental meddling that isn't necessarily concerned dare I say is not genuinely concerned with the humanitarian needs of, of Ukrainians and I think that being able to distinguish between those two things is can be difficult because I, I I I don't think one should be blase about the calls for no fly zone because I, I think they're i think for the most part um they're a logical call people would have while watching maternity wards be bombed it's just not that simple and it and it could escalate to a much larger conflict so then becomes the question of well what are we doing to 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 create a you know to create to to, to de-escalate the, the conflict and it seems like the u.s isn't really doing much at all other than escalating the conflict um Again, we can debate whether or not they're 
there are actual plausible alternatives or whether or not um, funding and arming uh, you know, Ukraine is the best course of action to create punishment against Russia, to, dis- to sort of disincentivize them from doing other you know, wars of aggression. Uh, I don't know. Those are those are tough calls. But you know, right now we only get you only get really one narrative. Um, but you know, the bomb, uh, the, the Biden White House has shot down the calls for no-fly zones many times. They seem absolutely zero, not interested in that. So it's not. A, I don't think it's a plausible risk. It sort of sounds good. That's why there were some reports that Congress people were trying to come up with a non-military no-fly zone. I guess it was just going to be like a vibes only thing. Oh yeah. Or I saw like some electromagnet, like some magnet that would make yeah. planes not work or something. <laughs> because it's again, it pulls well and it sounds good. It sounds good to support a no-fly zone. Yeah. Um, I, I think but- a lot of people are imagining that a no-fly zone, there's going to be like a an air traffic controller type person just waving some orange cones. Yeah, being like, I think that's how people, here. yeah. Because yeah. it, again, it's, it, the, 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 the term itself is not accurate. Yes. It's not a no-fly zone. It's a NATO fly series zone. Yeah. So again, it's, it's, it is just a misleading term altogether. It's not even just a marketing phrase. It is factually inaccurate. It is not a no-fly zone. There are no-fly zones have people flying over them. <laughs> yeah. It's a you it's don't a fly, fly here zone. zone. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a one party fly here zone, which is which doesn't quite have the same ring to it because you know, clear the skies has a kind of it sounds good. It sounds like let's get the military out of the skies so they can't bomb civilians. Um uh because I mean, again, Israel has full control over the skies over Gaza. Obviously, Hamas and very you know, Palestinian resistance organizations don't have an air force. Um, so if we were to call for a no-fly zone over Israel, it's uh, clearly that would require some military engagement with Israel. Yeah. Not just wishful, th- not just, you know, squishy, you know, wishful thinking. Yeah. Not a post-it note or anything like that. No. People don't typically just say, okay, sorry, you win air superiority. Yeah. I, um, I'm wondering, I know we have to wrap up here in a few minutes, but I'm wondering like, what's the role of think tanks in getting like in dealing with the media or pushing propaganda or certain narratives? Well, that's a big question. Uh, Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, I've written about it before we talk about the show, but basically, I mean, basically think tanks are, are depending on which ones, the, the more egregious offenders like uh, uh, C, uh, CNAS and CSIS, the, the, the Center for International Strategic Studies, uh, um, uh, the Atlantic Council. These are all funded primarily by Western corporations and weapons contractors, uh, Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, um, or directly the U.S. military. And their job is to l- basically sell war, sell weapons. They'll always come back with the most paranoid reading. They'll always come back with the most um, weapons contractor friendly reading of events. Um, they are there to provide a thin veneer of academia for what is basically just lobbying for the war machine um there are less egregious offenders but that's kind of their primary function that's increasingly become their primary function in fact the 2016 the new york times did a really scathing expose on csis uh they got their hands on some internal emails where they were basically pitched directly lobbying for uh congress to fund these these drones who were one of their primary funders um but then literally like the next week they were funding csis as a neutral observer um, so they don't even read their own reporting. Uh, that's the primary function of, of think tanks. There's a whole book to be written about it. In fact, I've wanted to write it for some time, but I haven't. Uh, my partner, Sarah Lazar actually has a piece coming out in the prospect, uh, pretty soon about, um, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and, and UAE funding think tanks that push, uh, for weapons contract, uh, for push for the, the narrative in Yemen and, and the funding of, um, Saudi Arabia, because the Biden administration just gave another $750 million in, in air to air missiles to Saudi Arabia. Um, so they're, they're instrumental to that because they also fund CSIS. They also fund, um, through Aramco, various consulting firms and, and Westex and, uh, or, uh, West exec, which is where pretty much, which is kind of a Biden, um, uh, white house in waiting from, from the last few years. Um, so there's a lot uh, there's a lot of ways that think tanks launder uh, corporate and government influence. It's been the subject of much um, uh, critical analysis and anger from the part of Yemeni activists trying to draw attention to the Saudi war in Yemen, because the think tanks have increasingly been there to kind of hand wave away the the civilian deaths and 
and and and justify the the continued funding of Saudi Arabia even after they killed Jamal Khashoggi in October 2018. So, think takes serve a central role in this. Um, again, you could do a whole five hours on it. Um, but you know, if you see the the uh, we we were, we kind of jokingly refer to them on our show as the Raytheon School of Oriental Meddling or the Raytheon Institute for Oriental Meddling. It's kind of a you know if you see a a very eager pundit who's a fellow at the such and such institute. Uh, to, you know, see who funds them. Nine times out of ten, it'll be a direct conflict of interest. Um, yeah, and so they always that, have like very nice, benign name. sounding senior yeah. fellow at the Center for the Middle East. Yeah, like well, the middle, the mid, the middle, the Middle East, the, the Middle East Institute is a great example. They're largely funded by the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and I mean, it just sounds so. And they had it a viral spread, academic. Yeah. You know? Yeah, they had a yeah. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Raytheon don't fund organizations because they're really, really concerned about the academic neutrality of 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 of, of fellows and, and researchers. They fund them for ideological and political lobbying purposes. I would imagine, um, yeah. Yeah, and it can, we intuitively know this when things are funded by China or Russia, right? They're sort of deemed suspect and 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 deplatformed and taken off YouTube because we view it as being corrupting money, but. Uh, for some reason, U.S. allies and U.S. corporations have no effect on the ideological output of those they fund. And that's so, because we love our freedom. Because we love freedom, and we just we you know when when uh, Mohammed bin Salman wakes up and he you know looks at the latest reports of school buses he blew up in Yemen, he just thinks really he's, he wants to really fund those neutral academic uh, bespectacled experts at CSIS because he, he cares so much about uh, impartiality and academic uh, academic integrity. Well, I could not agree more. And that seems very likely. Um, but <laughs> this has been a really uh, interesting conversation. And I know our listeners will really enjoy it. Um, where can people check out your writing and your podcast? Well, citations needed. Citations with an S is on Apple or uh, Apple Podcasts and other uh Spotify and Snitcher and Stitcher. I don't know. It's all whatever the kids are into these days. It's in all those podcast stores. And um, I write a Substack at the column at the uh, the column.substack.com where I try to write a couple times a week. Don't it's always, really good. I love it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me on. This was uh, this was useful and enlightening. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash replyguys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They're always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is yours